and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandro. I started this journey because I wanted to know why relations between Muslims and non-Muslims were so bad. My own assumption was that it was largely the fault of the Muslims. My guest today is journalist, broadcaster, prolific documentary maker, and author of the glorious Greetings from Bury Park, which he then helped adapt into the heartwarming film Blinded by the Light, Safraz Mansur. And the startling words I opened with are from his latest book, They, a sort of road trip through British Muslim communities, a beautifully written personal quest to discover the roots of one of the divisions that afflicts this country. Welcome to the podcast, Safraz. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Greetings from Berry Park was published in 2007. It is seeped in a sort of optimism because even though it looks back at racism and ghastliness and identity anxiety, it is told from a place of hope. 14 years later comes your latest book, They, and it feels like an attempt to rekindle hope at a time of profound division. Are we going backwards? Well, I'm going to preface my answer by saying that I am really resistant to answering questions that start with we, because I don't know what that actually means. Because in a way, the kind of grand declarative statement is exactly what I try not to do in my book, because I kind of feel like there's a whole industry of people who make those kind of massive generalizations or polemics. And I wasn't really interested in that. So I was trying to tell in both those books, human stories. You talked about you know hope and division and, and where they come from. And I think in a way, the reason that both of those books are the way they are is because of what was going on in my own life. So, so Greetings from Berry Park was written, as you say, it was published in 2007. I was in my mid-30s. And the reason for really writing it was to do with it was trying to understand at that point two questions. One, why did I end up being the person I'd become? I grew up in a you know, very working class Luton family. My dad worked in a factory in Vauxhall, didn't know anybody of any kind of influence. You know, I was expected to have an arranged marriage and get a pretty dull job and most likely stay in Luton. So why did it end up that I ended up not doing those things? And it wasn't, I thought, anything to do with any exceptional talent that I had. And so it was a trying to understand what was the journey that led to that. And the second question was, the relationship between myself and my father, what is passed on from generations and what is burnt? What are the things you want to carry and what do you not want to carry? So those kind of very personal questions about identity, belonging, one's place in the world. Those were the questions I started with in Greetings from Berry Park. And then to tell that story, you end up telling a story of migration, about belonging, about otherness, about religion, etc. Now, with they... The impetus for it didn't come from any kind of grand vision or plan. It actually came from feeling really frustrated. It was around about 2016. And, um, you know, that was the summer, as you'll, you'll know, you know, you had the Manchester Arena attack. You had London Bridge. You had Westminster Bridge. Then you had Brexit. You had uh, Joe Cox being murdered. You had Donald Trump winning the election. And then the following summer, very near to where I live, a guy tried to crash a van into a mosque in Finsbury Park. I just got really low, you know, I got really, really low because I was just like, 
this does not feel like the country that I want to live yes. in. This doesn't yeah. feel like the country that I believe in. This doesn't feel like the best version of the country that I need to feel exists, mm. you know. And then you started seeing, you know, the Toby Robinson Brigade marching in Rotherham and in, in Telford and in Rochdale and the weaponization of the whole child grooming stories. And mm. I started feeling like there is no other country I can go to there is no other country that really feels like my home. And yet, I don't feel comfortable with the version of the country that I'm seeing. And this kind of, you know, you know all about this, the polarization of debate and, and the way that hatred is amplified on social media. Yeah. And I got really low. And, I, and the specific reason I got low is because I've got two kids. And I grew up, I, I, I'm in a mixed faith, mixed race relationship with these two kids. And their mother is a white Scottish woman. And I am from a Pakistani Muslim background. And I was just like... They're still little. I don't want them to grow up feeling really comfortable and relaxed and happy about their mum's heritage, but feeling like there's some sort of problem with their dad's heritage. And so I was just like, OK, I'm going to write a book that looks for reasons for them to feel hopeful. And so that's where the starting journey began in terms of trying to find reasons to feel hopeful that were clear eyed and not just rose tinted. I think you once described the election of Barack Obama as, as a sort of happy ending um, uh, at the time. It felt like a happy ending. And, and the moment I read that, I thought that, well, if that's the happy ending, then Donald Trump is the sort of, you know, it's Carrie's hand shooting up from the grave yeah. <laughs> to grab you at the final frame of a film to, to, to say just when you felt you yes. were safe. It's yeah. back. And there is that sense in the book. That's a really good point. I mean, do you know what I think? I think we have the capacity for both of those impulses. You know, we have the capacity in our choices and in our leaders for both of those things. We've got the capacity to vote for hope or we've got the capacity to succumb to fear. America is embodied in both the choices of Trump and Obama. And that's true with Britain as well. I think what that really revealed to me in a way was... If you want hope to win, if you want to be positive, what what do you do then? What does any of us actually do? What can we do? And I think that one of the things that I was trying to find in writing this book was to try and amplify the stories of hope. Because, you know, you talked to before and I, I was sort of saying I was wary of declarative statements. The point being that the country that was being represented in 2016 and that I was getting down about isn't the only country. There are loads of other things going on yes. to make you feel hopeful. They just don't necessarily get traction. They don't necessarily get the attention. And therefore, one's perception of the country can get distorted as a result of that. And is distorted as study after study shows that people believe, you know, problems that exist in the country are much bigger than they, they are in fact. Um, so you, you are open and and quite explicit throughout they that you're using storytelling as a strategy to dislodge assumptions. But the quote I read at the start shows you started with your own misconceptions. Did your strategy work on you? Did you find that you ended the book uh, a different person than you started? Uh, yeah, I did to some extent. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, when you write a book, you have to write a treatment. Well, with I had to, I had to write a treatment beforehand and. I had to say, look, these are the questions I'm going to ask, but I can't tell you what I'm going to find. And so the book has an as a prologue and an epilogue, which I could not have written at the beginning. 
I literally only wrote that weeks before I had to hand it in. And I think the other thing to say about that, Alex, is, you know, sometimes there are books which I find incredibly annoying, where it feels that the writer knows the opinion that they have, and then they bang on about it for 290 pages, not having had their mind or anybody else's mind change during the whole time. So I find those books incredibly irritating. The other books I find incredibly irritating are the books which just tell you what to think and say, these are the things you need to think, this is what I'm going to tell you, as if somehow this person is like the voice of God, you know? I find those books deeply irritating as well. No, I mean, I think your approach throughout your work, because I I was, you know, preparing for this interview and looking at some stuff you've done in the past, and I the thing that really jumped out on me was the Lolo Ferrari documentary. That is not something anyone picks out usually. It's so interesting because I found it is exactly, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're saying, here's the monstering myth. Yes. Let's look at the actual person. Yeah. And once you see the actual person, it's really, it becomes quite difficult to monster them. That is such an interesting point. Do you know what's really interesting about that though, right? Is I got, it's about practical, that is a very good example of what you do with practicalities and pragmatics and with your own idealism and your own Mm. approach. So this documentary was about Lola Ferrari, who, if you remember the program in the 90s called Euro Trash, you know, she was like this pneumatic blonde who looked like a, you know, she was. And uh, I got asked to direct that documentary by Channel 4. Now, you know, that's, that's quite a nice thing to be asked. But I was like, well, can I put my own spin on it? So rather than doing something that was exploitative and, uh, and trashy, let's use the space and the opportunity of the commission to do something different. And I often think about in my career, I mean, I'm a little bit, slightly in a different place now, but not much. I often feel like so much of my career is people give you an opportunity, but the opportunity is the size of a postage stamp. You know, they'll let Mm. you make a documentary, but it'll only be a memoir documentary. They'll let you. So what you have to do is to do as many acrobatics on the size of that, on that (laughs) postage stamp as you can to show as much range and and nuance as you can. The Lola Ferrari documentary is a really good example of trying to show that range that you might find surprising within a very small postage stamp of a commission. The way you go about uh, the book is to explore several common criticisms, I guess, levelled at Muslim communities from a sort of uh, seemingly voluntary keep-to-ourselves aloofness all the way to grooming gangs. In each case, you tell stories that throw light on that particular issue. I found the chapter in which you explore the position of women in Islam one of the hardest because I felt that you found it one of the hardest Mm. because you admit that the way Muslim culture treats women offends your sensibilities. Mm. So why shouldn't it offend everyone else's? Mm. That's true. I mean, I basically started, Alex, with this idea that if I was was to meet someone who was basically quite weary and suspicious of Islam, and I asked them what their problems were, what would they say? And I'd say they'd yeah. probably say, oh, you know, you Muslims, you all stick amongst yourselves, you only want to marry each other, you, you hate gays, you're, you don't like this country. And I just listed all, like, ten things that an Islamophobe might say. And mm. I thought, okay, let's interrogate those. Let's, let's really go for it. Now, there were certain chapters that I found really hard. And the reason was, yes, I want to be hopeful, but I don't want to be naive. And also, I don't want to do something where I have the conclusion completely nailed, regardless of the facts that I find along the way. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah of course. So that, That's the journalist in you. That's the journalist. I have to be hard on myself. And yeah. it's no point saying, oh, you know, I kept the number of women I would hear would say, there's no religion that treats 
women better than Islam. There's not, and I was like, that just feels too easy. Those are the kind of trite homilies you get, but is it really true? So if you dig in and you have to be honest about it, you then find things that are going to be uncomfortable. And I think my approach was to inter- to sort of allow my internal dilemmas and uncomfortablenesses out. So I write about the fact that, yes, this is a happy ending, but isn't it weird that it took so many difficult stories and I only found this one happy ending? You know, So I try and make honest and open the moments where I find it complicated. And the women chapter was difficult also because it's hard to kind of come up with any definitive statements like, how are things for X by the end of the <laughs> chapter? You know, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. So you want to try and show as much variety as you can. But then at the same time, you don't want it to be just a hodgepodge of, it, of different voices that don't actually add up to anything. So you just do your best. I, I kind of just hope that it, it adds to the conversation in some way. Does being under constant attack as it must sometimes feel, actually make change within the Muslim community more difficult. I I just think, does always having to respond to external grievance suck the oxygen out of conversations that those communities need to be having amongst themselves? I would say it does. And I think the reason for that is there's a sort of circling of the wagons that can happen. You know, yeah. so I would I talk to hundreds of people all around the country. And because I am from a Muslim background, if they started giving me what I felt was like a line, I was just like, come on, mate, you know, that's just <laughs> not true, don't you? And eventually they'd say, yeah, you know, you're right. You don't want to say something where it looks like you're agreeing with Boris Johnson, do you? There's yeah. that, there is no point in trying to do that. So I think part of it is we can't say anything because it seems like we're going to give ammunition to the haters. That's part of it. Mm. And the second thing is, if you're feeling put down, it's really hard at that point to then admit that there might be some growth that you yeah. need to do or your journey to go on. You feel cornered. You're you cornered. cornered. And the funny thing is, you know, it's so similar to discussions I have with my family. It's like, you know, when we argue, when I have a, I was going to say argue, when we have a full and frank discussion with my children, I sometimes say to my wife, look, you can't give her, our daughter, an ultimatum. Because that makes it too binary. If you give her some get-out clause that allows her to sort of still retain her dignity, but then also do what we want her to do, that's more likely that there's going to be some progress, you know? Mm, And mm, so mm. I feel like it's like the tortoise that puts its head back into the shell and nobody wants to sort of admit that there are any issues. And what I wanted to try and do with my book was to say, look, this isn't going to be some defense of all Muslim communities in Britain and everything that anyone says about them is completely misguided because that's not the truth. But that doesn't mean that every single one is secretly plotting to, you know, to blow everything up and, and believes that, you know, Britain is the incarnation of Satan either. So it's just, it's about, it's a plea for nuance, really. Mm. Do you think that enmeshed in that is a, a general Western country tendency to be suspicious of religion in general? Do you think we're getting to the point where we, I say we, I know you don't like that, so I'll make it more specific. Western liberals Hmm. think religion is a ridiculous thing anyway, and Muslim communities are getting the brunt of that. I don't know, you know, I think there is, I can see what you're saying, but I sometimes think that actually... Western liberals some, sometimes are actually part of the problem because they sometimes don't call out certain kind of expectations yeah. or assumptions or things because they believe in cultural relativism or the rights of people to be able to do what they want, blah, 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 from a good place. It sometimes means that certain communities 
don't actually get a chance to grow more. So let's bring it back to something specific. You know, I talk about my mum in the book and she still can't speak English. She never learnt and she certainly can't read it. And there has a specific impact on me, which means that she's never read anything I've ever written and she's never listened to anything. And she knows absolutely she's very, very pretty much oblivious to anything I do. That's one part of it. But it also means that my, when my dad died in the mid 90s, since then, she's been completely reliant on on her family. Yeah. She does not engage with the outside world. Now, the, the hard point is if she had been strongly encouraged by the state to learn English when she'd come over in the 70s or in the 80s or any point, I think her life in the last 20 years would have been vastly more improved. But there is, I would say, a Western liberal impulse to say, no, nobody should be forced to learn English. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the right for everybody to learn their own communication and we should have translations and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I would argue that that's actually made people like my mother, her life poorer. What do you think? I, I mean, obviously, it's very, very complicated. But I, my sense is that there's always a, a weird element of envy in English xenophobia specifically, it it just feels to me that between the lines, immigrant communities embody precisely the sort of family values and work ethic and religious principles and strength of identity that white nationalists long for. Which is what Cameron actually had said. But they struggle to achieve. But isn't that exactly what David Cameron had said before he made his muscular liberalism speech? (laughs) Well, you, yes. I don't think we should be looking to politicians for consistency. No, no. I think you're right. But the again, the interesting thing about that for me is I agree with you in some ways that, you know, this the idea like I sometimes look at people like my dad and they think, oh, he's a traditional, he was a traditional Pakistani dad, but he was also a traditional Victorian dad. You know, it's like there's nothing particularly Pakistani about being kind of having those kind of aspir- having that kind of attitude. But what happens is as communities embed in, as they become, in quotes, integrated, as they marry out, the very values that you, as you're saying, you're saying that some people sort of look at, at these communities as embodying old school, traditional mm. British values, they themselves get diluted. Yes. So that is the social contract that actually the very, in becoming more, in quotes, British, they become less British in the old way. So is there a part of you that thinks, you know, some cultural differences are too big to reconcile, that it is possible there are issues on which a society has the right to say, this is the minimum standard expected of you, and I don't care what the man in the sky says? Of course. Yeah, it's about having red lines. I mean, in a way, it's about trying to establish what those lines are. And I mean, I think a lot of this to do with things like education. I have to say, I am a product of my time as well. You know, I grew up in the 80s. I, as I say in the book, I grew up in a time of macroaggression. So I don't have that much time for microaggressions, <laughs> really, being honest about it, you know. And I, I find it baffling that there are parents in Britain, Muslim parents, say, who can say, my child is not going to learn music, art or drama because the religion says that that's wrong. Yes. I find that insane. You see, as a as a European immigrant, I, I grew up in the time of microaggressions and have now found myself in in a time of 
proper macro question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you once wrote that by your 30s, you were set on trying to find someone who was, and I quote, British enough for you and Pakistani enough for your family. You fucked that up, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, spectacular. I did, I did, I did. But here's another really interesting point about that, right? So there's a chapter I, I write, which is about marriage and the desire to marry Muslims within Muslims, etc. blah, blah, blah. Now, there is a chapter or there's a narrative which can say, oh, yes, you know, and this is the sort of shorthand. I, I, I escaped an arranged marriage and then I met the woman of my dreams and she's a white Scottish blonde woman mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Everything is great. And that's sort of true. But what was really interesting in writing this book is I started thinking, OK, if I was in my early to mid 30s now and I still had that same impulse to try and please my family and meet someone who was whatever I put Muslim enough for my family and British enough for me or whatever I put. Now there's all these apps and websites which young professional integrated blah whatever Muslims can use, which they weren't around when I was you mm, know, mm. around. And I interviewed some of the people for them for this book. And do you know what was really, I did them on Zoom because it was during the lockdown. And afterwards I thought, you know what? There is no argument I can make that I have done a better, I've, I've made a better choice. These people are completely cool. They're totally right for each other. Once this lockdown's finished, I'm going to invite them around for dinner. They're, they're, so it's kind of interesting that if those things had existed, I might have been able to not fuck it up, in your words. It's just <laughs> part of it is about the options you have at that time. And nowadays, people have many more options. So you, you maybe I could have found someone who was aware of the previous work of Bruce Springsteen and also... Uh, would have been somebody who could uh, uh, somebody who wouldn't have uh, have uh, m- meant that my family boycotted my wedding. I don't know. Maybe there was somebody out there, but times change. Or maybe people who act as cultural bridges are actually vital to how this shapes up in the future. Do you think I should put that on my next uh, business card or my Twitter bio? Cultural bridge. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to ask you about how you raise children with a mixed heritage. And then I thought about it. And I thought, that's such a shit question. All children have mixed heritage. But I was struck by the generational shift with regard to homosexuality. Hmm. Your parents' generation basically would never accept it. Yeah. You went on a journey yeah. on it. Your daughter think your daughters think it's weird that it was ever a thing. Yeah, and my little boy currently, I can't stop him wearing dresses. <laughs> I mean, he's been wearing dresses for the last six weeks, and he doesn't Good see them. He doesn't see Good it as any them. kind of gender issue at all. So you know, those are, yeah, that's that is. So you know, we're talking at the beginning when you asked your declarative question about are things hopeful or not. That's hope, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, in this heat, dresses rock. Are, do you think generational gulfs? are made bigger in mixed marriages, especially when there's an immigrant family involved, because it's a sort of process that makes generations evolve very quickly in their thinking. And you add a a partner from a different culture to that, and it somehow feels like it elongates that gulf. Sometimes with these marriages, the person who is of the, in quotes, ethnic or religious background, they have so diluted that part of them, that it doesn't really make any difference, you know? Like, if they have completely kind of extinguished that side of them, then there isn't so much of a gulf because they're practically British in a normal kind of way and they haven't really held on to anything. I think the interesting thing for me is that, and the big tensions that I have right now that I'm having, is I now lead a very middle-class white life, 
one of the great advantages of this book, and you know, it's, not, it's half a joke, but it's not, is that writing the book helped me to sort of find a few more Muslims to befriend because I didn't have, enough, I didn't have to know that many beforehand. <laughs> um, so I've got a few more on my WhatsApp group now. But part of it, it also means that this stuff, the, the Pakistani Muslim working class stuff, that was just how I'm baked. That is exact. That is just part of me. I might not live like that now, mm. but it's just it will never stop being part of who I am. My kids are not like that at all. And so how I can try and give any sense of, to them that there is something extra I can offer or there is they have this other heritage and there are these. How to transplant or how to kind of give them a flavor of that is a really big question. And so that's where the generational gulf comes, because they don't really get any of it in their normal mother's milk in terms of their normal lives. Yeah. And therefore they can't speak. In, you know, like when I go and see my mum, you know, my kids can't speak to her. And that's yeah. kind of sad. You know, that's kind of sad that my, my nearly 10-year-old daughter, can all, only she, all she can do is hold my mum's hand, but she can't talk to her. And that's a generational gulf. Your mum has Alzheimer's, doesn't she? Yeah. I'm in the same position. My journey is much more advanced, I have to tell you. We've been, mm. uh, we had our diagnosis 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So my mum is in the final stages. But you talk about something that really chimed with me about how difficult it is when they are the last of their generation, mm. the the sort of keeper of a family history. And I get that because mm. it's exactly the same for me. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't understand that it's not only the parent that loses their memory, it's the mm. entire family yeah. that loses a, a chunk of it. Like, you know, there, there are things that I don't remember that I would just call mum and mm. say, yes. who, you know, where did we go that summer when X happened? And yes. I can't do that anymore. So yes. the, the adjudicator is gone. Yes. But did you find that like with my mother, it also took the edge of some of the judgmental sharpness and absolutism that might be there. Did it soften her a little? Because I, I, find, I found it in mine. It's, I mean, this is really hard stuff to talk about. I think, um, I think what it did is, I think you're absolutely right about the storytelling. And I think one of the things I find sad, it's just tragic for me, is I'm somebody that likes facts and stories mm. and etc., and my dad died when I was 23. And obviously, most people when they're in their 20s don't ask their dads to tell them stories about when they were growing up. And, you know, so I never learned anything from him. And with my mum, exactly all the kind I the thing I find sad is that in my mind, I've got this sort of central casting. You know, if you were to write a film about it, you'd have the mother who says, oh, when you were three, I remember this happened and your this happened. And, and she'd be full of stories that would tell you something that would illuminate what you were like as a little kid and, you know, all yeah. that stuff. And that's just not possible. That's a landscape that has been extinguished, you know? Mm. And so that feels very sad. In terms of the, the, the anger and the things like that, I've let that go for a long time. And I think what I've left, I'm left with is really a sense of wonder at the journey of my mum, to be honest, and yeah. women of her generation, because my mum's like 86 now, 87. And it just, it's an astonishing thing that you think in, there are now, there are currently two Mrs. Manzors in my family. And one of them was born 14 years before partition in a small village in Pakistan, Mm. you know, illiterate. She moved to Britain. She works at home as a seamstress. And my dad's working in a Vauxhall factory and she has this very hermetically sealed Pakistani life. Then her dad, then her husband dies. And then she spends all these years on her own mourning, etc. And then she's joined by another Mrs. Manzor 
who's a white Scottish blonde growing up, who grew up in a hippie community in Scotland. Mm. And she wel- ultimately, she welcomes her. And when they see each other, they hug. And you think, what kind of a journey would that girl growing up in Pakistan would have thought that that was going to be her daughter-in-law and that was going to happen? And yes, her mind is, her memory's not great. And yes, I can't ask her old stories. But when she sees me, when she sees my wife, she still hugs my wife. She doesn't hug me. And you think that's, it's amazing that I have lived and she has lived long enough to at least go on that journey. And even if she isn't fully here, at least she's here enough. Hold on tight. It's not a... It's not a linear journey, despite what the dominant narrative tells you. There is uh, still loads of uh, life to be squeezed and loads of uh, love to be had. I mean, I'll just say one more thing about the Alzheimer's thing, which I don't know if you've thought. Is, I have felt that it has softened the idea of goodbye. Because I guess so. Yeah, it has felt for many years that every time I go back and mum is still alive and although she can't talk now, she still smells like mum, you know, mm. she still feels like mum when I hug her. Mm. And and that feels like a massive bonus to me mm. because, what you know, what, what are the alternatives? Your parents living forever mm. healthy is not an option. So the alternative is that you get a phone call in the middle of the night that just tells you they're gone. And and what we got was a wake-up call to say, start spending time with her mm. because she's going slowly. And mm. I am very grateful for that, actually. I think the other thing it made me think was, it was partly the reason I wrote the first book and the second book, which is, you know, if my mum can't walk out now, but if, if 10 years ago she would have been able to, and my thought was, if you saw her walking down the street, not you specifically, but somebody, mm. they would see an old Pakistani woman wearing a dabatta and walking along and she wouldn't be to speak English to them. And this person who'd be looking at them would probably think, well, she's a lovely old lady. She looks nice, but I've got nothing in common with her. And I was like, but if you got to know her and you got to know that she raised four kids and, you know, and you sort of like the, the stories of what she had to sacrifice so that we could have the chances we have, you would then respond to her as a human being and not as a Pakistani woman or as a Muslim, you know? And I thought that process of empathy and storytelling would actually do some good because you'd be humanising issues that otherwise are just abstracted. And because most people don't get to know the inner lives of people like my mum. No, there is nothing more extraordinary than ordinary people. Safraz Mansur, thank you for your time and for your remarkable work, including this gorgeous book. Well, thank you for talking to me. Appreciate it. They is out now. Listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a full panel show every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I began with Safraz's own words on the assumptions he carried when he started. It's right that I should finish with what he found. In the best sense, there is nothing special about the Muslims. There are no better or worse, no more virtuous or blameworthy than any other community. They are, however, too often singled out for criticism and blame and too rarely accorded praise and respect. Put simply, many of the issues I have spent this book exploring have much less to do with religion and much more to do with class and geography. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out.
The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>